So it is a privilege uh, to be here and to uh, open the Word of God to you. We have read the Scripture, and uh, I would say that uh, my we'll handle this entire Scripture, but the one verse that really stands out is this. Uh, what good or what profit is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self or soul? And let me ask if we might uh, enter the Lord's presence one, one more moment and ask for his blessing. Father, this is your word. If anything I could get in your way, I pray you'll get me out of the way. Lord, we pray that you might speak, do your work through your spirit. That Christ might be lifted up. Forgive us of our sins, O Lord, and help us to be listeners to you, to have sensitive hearts, to come to know you better today. We pray for your presence here, for your blessing on this, your very word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As a young boy growing up, I had the privilege to live next door to sort of a celebrity Now, the celebrity was actually uh, my uncle, John Bolt Culbertson. He was a prominent uh, lawyer in Greenville, South Carolina, my hometown. And uh, not only was he a prominent lawyer, but uh, back then lawyers couldn't advertise. So he ran for office. Every time there was an office, he ran for it. He got on radio, television, uh, but he wasn't uh, just simply a guy kind of expressing his views. He was, uh, at that time, a very liberal Southern Democrat, uh, but that, that distinguished him, but he also was just flamboyant. Okay, he was flamboyant. That's all there was to it. He would uh, wear a white suit, white belt, white shoes, a little colorful bow tie. He would wear a straw hat. And uh, before there were hippies, he was a balding man, he's stocky, chunky kind of guy, but he let his, his white hair just flowed beyond down over the collar of his shirt and his jacket. He was a character with no question about it. He loved people. He was gregarious and outgoing. And my father told me that uh, in the 60s particularly, uh, when he would leave his law office, to go uh, get lunch at the diner there on Main Street, that as he walked down the street, like a magnet, people would follow him. People would actually be at their doors waiting. When is John Bolt Culberson coming? And they would, and he would just eat and talk and eat and talk. And the people loved him. Now, he wasn't without controversy, but the masses, the little people, looked up to him because he built his law practice defending poor whites and poor blacks. That's who he was. And they loved him. And they respected him. Even those that didn't agree with him respected him. The people knew that he cared. He was known as a man who was a friend of all the people. So he had a following. He could draw a crowd. He was dynamic. And when I think of him, I immediately come to look at this, the context of this passage, because you see, Jesus was here for three years. And the, the first year, uh, those who study it say it was his year of obscurity. He was gaining and gathering his disciples and teaching them some things on the side. He was kind of hiding out at times and he was up in the north and he was there and people kind of knew him, but he was obscure. 
But his second year of his ministry was his year of popularity. He's doing miracles, more miracles. He's, he's, he's out in the open. He's getting a lot of antagonism, but people are coming. The crowds are following him. How can we go where he goes? In our context, in this passage, he has fed the 4,000. He has fed the 5,000. The crowds are there. They're listening. They don't even think to pack a meal. They're just going to find him. And he does these incredible miracles that we have attested to in Scripture. But he's facing his third year, his last year. And with that in mind, the text tells us that he found a place, as he often did, to pray in private, to prepare himself for what is about to come because his third year is the year of rejection. And he turns to his disciples and he poses a question. And in this text, we will see that the Christian life involves a serious confession. It involves understanding the cross. It involves a call. A call that comes to every Christian. The confession. Jesus is praying. He's in private. He's with his disciples. It's the time for his team to be together. And as he prays, he sees what's coming. And so it's time to prepare and to teach his team. And so he asks this question. Who do the crowds say I am? Because the crowds are there. These disciples are seeing he's picking up steam. Who do they say I am? Well, John the Baptist. He's dead, but they think maybe you're John the Baptist. Elijah or one of the other great prophets because you have this prophetic aura about you. That's what the crowds say. He's more than ordinary. That's for sure. Why are the crowds following me? Who do they say I am? And they don't really understand as the masses so often in our world don't understand who Jesus really is. Why does he ask them this question? Who do the crowds say I am? The first purpose, I think, was he wanted to get them to affirm their own faith. To declare what they believe about him. They, they've been confused many times. The parables and the asking questions and wondering what Jesus is talking about. They're still a little confused. He wants them to affirm their faith. He wants them to prepare them in this year of rejection to stand for the truth. He knows that the crowds can turn quickly. 
So he wants them to affirm their faith, stand for the truth. He wants to prepare them to stand against the tide of popular opinion. This year is coming and the masses are fickle. And they can turn at any time. Back when I was finishing up my tenure at University of Florida as a RUF campus minister, uh, near the very end, we had started a new work at Florida State. And the campus minister there, he knew that even though I love the Gators, my ultimate loyalty is the University of South Carolina. And uh, he said, hey, Ron, he said, did you know that the Seminoles in South Carolina are playing here in Tallahassee? He said, I can get you tickets. Really just one ticket. I was going up there to visit him by myself. And I said, I would love to go to that game. And he said, but there's one stipulation. He said, I just have to prepare you. He said, this ticket is near the 50 yard line, but it is right in the middle of all FSU fans. I said, that's okay. I'll take it. So I came and I had my Carolina T-shirt, my Carolina hat I had on my black and my garnet. But he was right. It's all FSU fans everywhere. I wish I could say I had a lot to cheer for in the game. There wasn't much there. But it was obvious that I was not on their side. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for the turning of the crowd against him and against them. He is preparing them for his rejection. Who do you say I am? Jesus asks And in the text, Peter says, the Christ of God, he believes, the Messiah. We have a longer, more exhaustive answer in Matthew chapter 16, where Peter says, and these words are poignant, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Powerful doctrinal statement. It's profound that Peter could make this confession because Jesus, at the time, as popular as he is, he has no throne, he wears no crown. He has no army, no great following. He has no kingdom that they can see. And yet Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. How does he know this? Jesus says, you're blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood doesn't understand this. This is revealed by the Father. This confession. Who do you believe Jesus Christ is? If you ever enter this church or another church and they get you to say the Apostles' Creed in unison, 
If you can stand up and you can declare, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And it goes on and tells us about the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the resurrection, the forgiveness, life. If you can say that from your heart. Even if your faith is a little shaky, if you can say that, I believe this, that is from God. And you're blessed. You're blessed. Jesus says to his disciples, he warns them, don't tell this to anyone because the crowds will run with it. They'll want to put a crown on him. They'll want to get a throne. They'll want to see him lead an an uprising insurgence against the Roman Empire. No, they'll misunderstand Keep it to yourself. This wonderful confession. Powerful. Probably a highlight in the moment. Maybe the other disciples shaking their heads and agreeing. Yeah, Peter. You finally came through, Peter. You're always speaking of it. Yeah, you did it. And then Jesus goes from the confession to the cross. Don't tell this to anyone. Why? The Son of Man must suffer many things. Yes, Jesus says, I am the Messiah. But there is a paradox here. And there are a few paradoxes. There seem to be conflicting messages. I am the Messiah. But the Messiah is going to suffer. The Messiah is going to be Rejected. The Messiah is going to be killed. The Messiah is going to be raised. The Son of Man, Jesus says about himself, must suffer. This phrase, Son of Man, it does speak of his humanity that he walked in this earth. He was flesh. He was fully man as well as fully God. But Jesus uses it strategically as well to speak of himself in some ways, again, in paradox. The son of man, this phrase comes from Daniel chapter seven, verse 13, where there's a picture, a vision of one who is the son of man and he is to be given all authority, glory, power to be worshipped, to be given dominion and a kingdom The Son of Man, he sounds like, and he is a human being, but this is one special Son of Man. This is a glorious Messiah. But there is that paradox. He will die, but in dying, he will live. Jesus says he will be raised to life. These are shocking words to the disciples because Jesus says this must happen. This is God's will. It's coming. It's sure. It's unavoidable. And in the Matthew text. Peter says it can't happen. You can't go to the cross. You can't die. And, you know, Jesus says. Peter goes from this great confession right to. 
Get thee behind me, Satan. This must happen. This is why I have come. I must die. I must go to the cross. He's going to suffer many things and be rejected. Rejected. Right before I went to seminary, I worked. I got a great summer job at a place called Norwich Pharmaceuticals. Norwich Pharmaceuticals, uh, where I worked, it, it was it was the location, it was the only location in the world that made liquid Pepto-Bismol. Okay, have you ever seen liquid Pepto-Bismol in crates, broken and pink, going all over? Well, I did quite a few times. Sometimes I was driving the forklift. But I learned a little bit, even though I was a forklift uh, operator and sort of just a, uh, a gopher type. Uh, I got to see Pepto-Bismol and some other liquids in process. I got to see the big vats churning. I mean, these are big vats churning this pink stuff. And eventually they take it and they have an assembly line with bottles and the bottles go through and they have to have their tops put on, have to have labels put on them. But I watched this process and there were always some rejected. Maybe crooked labels, maybe cracked bottles, rejected. Jesus is going into this year where he is still presenting himself the pure Son of God, and they're turning Him out. And they're turning on Him. The word they rejected means to be declared useless after very close scrutiny. Oh, He was popular, all right, but they looked a little closer. He started saying some things they just couldn't quite handle. And they looked and then we know eventually it was the masses, right? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. How quickly they turn. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for the cross. And so now he turns to the call. The call. In Mark, we are told this parallel passage that Jesus actually called the multitudes. He was in private, right? Praying with his disciples and having this discussion and trying to lay out, here's what's going to happen. But then after he's done that, he calls the multitudes. They're out somewhere waiting, I guess, somewhere. And he calls the multitudes. He goes from the private to the public. And he says, it says to them all, listen. If anyone will come after me, me, not getting fed, not the miracles, me, Jesus himself, he or she must deny Himself. We used to have a saying in our culture, no pain, no gain. 
That's part of what Jesus is saying here. If you're coming after me, there's going to be pain. If there is no cost, there is no crown. Actually, if there is no cost, there is no grace. No grace. This is where we need to get clear in our understanding of the cross and the work of Christ. The cross, providing grace, cost Christ his life. Receiving grace is free. You can come at any time. He calls you. It's free. Come as you are. Accept him. It's a gift. It cost him to provide it. He offers it freely. But when you come, when you come, it will cost you everything. It will cost you yourself. No cost, no grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is very well known now because... The, the book that came out uh, by Metaxas, I think his name is pronounced, uh, became a New York Times bestseller. And people are reading about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you know the story, he, uh, he only lived uh, 39 years. He was a Lutheran pastor at the age of 25. Hitler rose up. And eventually he left Germany, he fled, but after his study and some ministry, he realized, I've got to go back. I've got to go back and fight this madness. And we all question, we can question his ethic because he really did want, he was part of a plot to kill Hitler. Most of the German church, the masses followed Hitler. Bonhoeffer did not. Eventually, he was arrested. He died in a Nazi concentration camp two months before the war was over. He was hung. He died. In the meantime, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He called it just discipleship. Someone else says it's the cost of discipleship. And he coined a phrase, a popular phrase, cheap grace. Cheap grace. He says, what is cheap grace? That is grace without cost. He says it is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring people to repent. It is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without confession. He says it is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. He says really cheap grace is grace without Jesus Christ. It's grace without Jesus Christ. I think that's what a lot of of our masses, our culture believes today. God will be gracious, but don't make me follow Jesus. Seriously? Bonhoeffer says, costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. It is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ. But he says it is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
If anyone will come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself. The word there, deny, means to disregard self. To forget that self exists. It's it's speaking of the humble way. The way of humility in the Christian life. When we convert, when we turn to Christ, we repent. What are we repenting from? Self-life. Self-will. Selfishness. Following my way all the time. And when we talk about the doctrine of sanctification, growing in the Christian life, we still repent. Because self likes to crop up. And stand erect in its own way. And so we repent in the Christian life as well. Look, this text is how we live the Christian life. This is how we save and spare our marriages. This is how we maintain relationships when we're so different. And conflict is inevitable. Wherever you turn. Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. That's the Christian life, the Christian call. This is a heavy call. It only gets heavier. And take up the cross daily. The cross is an emblem of death. It speaks of pain, humility, shame. Someone once said that when you see a person or a man on the cross, you realize he doesn't have any future. He's only got one way to go. He can't look back at what might have been or what could be. Everyone knows why he's there. He's there to die. That's the Christian life. Take up your cross daily. It means dying to self Accepting the path of the trials that God brings your way. What is He doing? Conforming you to Jesus Christ, His Son. Daily. Daily. This is the gospel that throws in the word daily. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily. It's a call for every Christian every day. We might want to say Every moment. We need to hear it. And follow me. There's a word that speaks of endurance. Follow. I'm going to follow you today, Jesus. I'm going to follow you tomorrow. I'm going to follow you at this moment. I'm going to follow you after years and years and years. If you want to come after Him, He says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Him. He goes a little deeper. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Paradox. You want to save it, you're going to lose it. You're going to waste it. You're going to ruin it. You're going to miss out. You give it to me. You lose it. You give it up. I will give you life that you've never known. 
that you would have never known. In John 12:24, Jesus said that unless a kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, it will remain only as a single seed, but when it dies, multiple seeds. We are like that kernel. When we die, life comes through God's spirit and power. But it has to die. We have to die. A number of years ago, I gave up trying to grow real grass in my yard. We have lots of clover. I keep it short. We have some weeds. We have a little bit of grass here and there. And I created a philosophy that, look, I'm probably never going to have a very nice yard. But in the wintertime, I can have a nice yard because... October, November, December, whenever I get around to it, I throw winter rye. I throw winter rye out. I hope to plant it so that it's right before it rains and it'll, but sometimes I have to wait for the rain. Sometimes I have to wait. I'm watching. I'm watching. And oftentimes after I throw it out and I'm watching and I walk along my, my lawn, I look and I see those seeds and I say, die. Die. Because I know, if those seeds will die, the grass will come up. And for at least a few months, I'll have a green yard. You lose your life, Jesus says, you'll save it. You try to hold on to it, you'll lose it. Then Jesus comes to what I think is possibly the most serious verse in the Bible. It's certainly one of the most serious. Uh, I've, I've looked around. One of the most serious verses in the Bible, I think, is, is Matthew seven twenty three. that whole context where... Jesus says, many will come on that day and say, oh, I prophesied in your name. Oh, I cast out demons in your name. Jesus, I used your name. And Jesus says, I'll say to him, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. That's a serious verse. That's one that gives me pause. Revelation chapter 20. There's a serious passage. The great white throne judgment where all creatures are there to be judged and everything flees away so that there is nowhere to hide. And it's me and God and a reckoning. That's a serious passage. But this, it's still probably my top passage. Most serious. What? Good is it? What profit is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his or her own self or soul? This verse takes us into eternity. You mean I'm investing in everything in this world and it will count for nothing. I'll lose my soul. I'll be judged, condemned. I will be thrown into hell. I mean, this is a serious verse. Now, do you understand why the crowds 
may have started thinking, uh, what about this Jesus guy? I didn't get any bread today. I got serious verses. If you take him seriously, then we have to listen. It disrupts us. It's the verse I could never escape from childhood as I ran from God. Not wildly, just kind of quiet subversion. I don't love God. I'm just going to do my own thing. I just won't do it in a way that anyone notices. Jesus points to the way of the cross. He continues to say, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. These are very radical statements Jesus is making. He's, no, he's not John the Baptist. No, he's not Elijah. No, he's not some of the prophets. He's not a nice guy or a good teacher or some wonderful philosopher. No, he's coming in his own glory. He is the Son of God. I think this is one reason why in our culture... So many people, if they take a survey or they go on, post on Facebook, religion, Christian, Christian. I think in some ways, maybe they kind of know this verse and they're like, I, I wouldn't deny him. I'm going to put Christian. We don't know what it means. I'm not there to judge anybody. I just think as a culture, you know, we're kind of Christian. Matter of fact, I would tremble myself a little bit if I put this verse on Facebook, I might lose some friends. I might lose a lot of friends. I don't know. I just put that little tag, Jesus. Jesus said it. I still probably lose my friends. Some of them. So we cling to the veneer of Jesus and the veneer of Christian. Because we don't want to really deny him. I mean, look at that verse. The call. This is the call of every Christian. It's sobering. It's serious. It's thoughtful. But if we take it seriously, it's life. It's hope. It's future. He calls us to walk with Him. He calls us in the way of humility, in the way of death, in the way of humility. There is victory. It's a paradox. We had a student at Reformed Seminary in Charlotte graduate a few years ago, but uh, I got to know him while he was there. This guy's very bright. He's gone on to do Ph.D. work. Nice looking guy, athletic, outgoing, just just, you know, the total package in some ways. And I, uh, Kathy and I sat down with him and his wife. And we talked about his personality profile. I do assessments like that. And and he actually had the profile of of a cult leader. OK, cult leader. And he, and he said and he said, uh, yeah, he said, you know, that's very true. He said, but before I came to seminary, he said, God had to break me. He took me through a wilderness. He took me through a spiritual desert. He took me down. And in one of my classes, I have the students read various classic writings. And um, he read a book 
that I highly recommend called Humility by Andrew Murray. And he wrote in his paper a little bit that I want to read to you, so I think it makes the point. And he begins by quoting, at least in the middle of the paper, he has this quote by Murray that says this, Without humility, no man can see God. Humility is the first thing and the one thing that every man must have to approach God. A lack of humility, therefore, is a straight road to hell. If a man has not humility, he has not love. And love is the kernel of every command God gives. If we know not humility, we know nothing How crucial humility is, and yet how little we understand and embrace it. And then the student writes about himself. Humility is the goal of my Christian life. It is the highest thing I can hope to attain. My loftiest ambition should be to go low. And who can get lower than Christ has gone. As the Westminster Confession Shorter Catechism reminds us, no one can, for Christ underwent the incarnation, that is, became flesh, and that in a low condition, in a suffering life, a humiliating and painful death, hell and being buried under the earth for a time, no one can go lower than this. And no one has come from a higher place. And so he says, scrubbing toilets and changing diapers and serving and counseling and receiving abuse and sickness and pain are all a most wonderful blessing. Circumstances that are preparing in me and for me an eternal weight of glory beyond my most profound and wild imaginings. Of course, he says, this perspective is the plain, apparent, orthodox, Christian one. It is the path of Jesus and the one every follower of his is called to walk. It is also life changing because it kills you. As C.S. Lewis recommends, die before you die. It is the only way to live. Die before you die. Paradox. It is the only way to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. May he enable us to do so. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our self-life rises up so easily, so quickly. And we forget you. We quench your spirit. We seek our own way. We don't look at the cross and the work you've done. Forgive us. We know you indwell us. We pray, O Lord, you might help us to be your followers and to heed your call as we look at the cross and maintain our confession. And we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.